This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories of women who are forced to go it alone. The first shows why hairy, naked mythological creatures might be a bad idea for a pet, and the second is why you don't want to have a slumber party with a giant. The creature this time is Hoop Snake, a super venomous creature from 1800s America, because the Old West absolutely needed more danger. This is Myths and Legends, episode 156, Clever Girl. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. There are two stories this week. The first is that of Costanza, who is not a short, stocky, slow-witted bald man, but the youngest daughter of the Egyptian king of Thebes. Today's story is an Italian fairy tale written in the 1500s by Giovanni Straparola in a collection entitled The Facetious Knights of Straparola. It's a collection of works that would go on to influence other fairy tale heavyweights, such as Basile, Peralt, and the Grimm brothers. Not much backstory for today's story, just that it's set in the late Middle Ages. The Egyptian king, Ricardo, looked on his life and determined that it was awesome. He had three daughters and enough money to pay all their dowries to honorable husbands, all good guys, not a blue beard in the bunch. The very accurately named Egyptian king of Thebes, Ricardo, divided up his kingdom equally among his son-in-laws and retired on that sliver he left for himself and the queen. It was all wrapped up with a bow perfection. It was after the wedding of their youngest daughter, Spinella, that Ricardo and his wife, Valeriana, were having dinner. Finally, finally, empty nesters. So, I'm pregnant, Valeriana said, and took another bite. Ricardo sat there speechless. What? Valeriana shrugged. Not too many ways to misinterpret that. She was pregnant. Yeah, but I I thought that was it for you in that department, Ricardo managed, finally. The queen nodded. Yeah, they did think that, but it wasn't. She took another bite. The king face palmed. It had been perfect. Three daughters. He had divided up his kingdom. He had nothing left to make a good match for the third daughter. His head shot up. And it's mine, right? I can't, like banish you or put you to death or something? The queen finished chewing before uttering, you can try, and taking another bite. The king laughed at his own obvious joke that was definitely a joke, honey, and then he forced a smile for the wonderful, terrible news. The moment he saw Costanza, he loved her. All that anguish about not being able to rest anymore dissipated like the morning fog and sunlight when he first heard that baby's cry. All of his anxiety, though, transferred to the mother, Valeriana. With a hand wave and the assurance that it would work out, the king dismissed the woman's fears. But the queen knew that the world would be a hard place for a woman with no connections or inheritance. Her life would be her husband's life. And the type of men they could attract with so meager a dowry the queen allowed herself a moment of despair. But then she went to work. 
She made sure that the girl, Costanza, received all the training that her other daughters received. Even though it was hopeless, Valeriana sighed when she saw how quickly Costanza took to the instruction. She learned the manners and the bearings of a graceful maiden. No subject was too difficult for her. She learned to dance, play the lute, and spent days, weeks in the library. Seeing the knights in the courtyard, she joined them and learned to break horses, handle arms, wear armor, joust, and ride with the warriors as if she was one of them. Then the time came for her to be married. The king was certain that, once potential suitors heard how intelligent, independent, and forceful this young woman was, they would fall in love with her. Because that's what every medieval king was looking for, Costanza had exactly one suitor come knocking. Brunello, the son of the Marquis of Vivian. The king, with the nothing that he could give any man who wanted to marry Costanza, was grateful that anyone showed up. He assured Brunello that the son of the Marquis would be marrying Costanza. Costanza just had to rubber stamp it, but seriously, this was the Middle Ages. He could literally have her put to death if she refused. He wouldn't, of course, but you know, the implication usually made things run smoother. Her father standing behind the man, arms out with a, uh, uh, look on his face. Costanza pursed her lips. No. King Ricardo's jaw dropped. No? What did she mean? No. Costanza shrugged. Not too many ways to take that. The answer was no. She wasn't marrying Brunello. No offense, Brunello. You seem like a nice guy. Now, she was the fourth daughter, and like the previous three, she wanted to be married to mighty kings, not to the only guy who had nothing else happening for him. Again, no offense, Brunello. Brunello pouted. Kind of a lot of offense taken, but he couldn't really say anything. Costanza turned to her father. She said that she understood she sounded ungrateful, but she wouldn't hold it against him. She knew he was in a tough spot, so she would make it easy. She would leave, vowing never to marry, unless, like her sisters, she married a great king. Ricardo, the king, couldn't believe what he was hearing. No, she couldn't leave. Costanza smirked. Well, they'd see about that, wouldn't they? She bowed and exited the room. The king facepalmed and apologized to Brunello. The princess will be back here, and she will be marrying him, he assured the young man. Now will someone go drag her back here? The men looked down the hallway, but there was nothing. It was completely empty. The king's eyes widened. Well, go after her. The guards would never find Costanza, and furthermore, it was found that she had a horse tacked up and ready to go before meeting with Brunello. She was galloping away from the city of Thebes before the alarm was even raised. When I say Thebes, I'm talking about the Egyptian city, which makes Costanza's overland trip to modern-day Romania all the more impressive. Over the course of the trip, she decided that, for safety while traveling in the medieval world, she would change her name to Costanzo and dress in the garb of a man. She attracted far less attention as some random guy traveling alone than some girl, and frankly, she was tired of beating would-be attackers senseless. And... After several months on the road, she was tired of sleeping on the ground and having no money. When she arrived in the city of Costanza, in modern-day Romania, she took it as fate and entered the city. Her horse stabled, 
She walked until she found a courtyard and the king standing out, surveying his subjects. When the king's eyes lighted on Costanza, in the garb of Costanzo, the person saluted the king and continued on. The king smirked and asked the guards to bring that strange young man to him. After one conversation, Costanza slash Costanzo entered the service of the king. And after mere weeks, she was his favorite. In fact, she was loved by everyone in court and especially by one in particular, the queen of Costanza. One afternoon, the queen presented the king's favorite with an offer. The queen sidled up next to Costanzo. Did the young man want to, you know, enter into her service? Notice the exaggerated wink? Costanzo smiled awkwardly and stepped back. He was already in the service of the king, and he couldn't ask to be released. He was the king's man until death or dismissal. Good day. The queen smiled and said that she wasn't talking about actual service. She was talking about what she opened her eyes and Costanza was gone. She frowned. She'd get that guy. She always got the guy. She didn't get the guy, though, not only because there was no guy to get, but because Costanza was very conscious about the queen's presence and attention. She didn't let the queen get close again. She didn't need Queen Grabby Hands blowing her disguise and forcing her back onto the road, or worse, into the city dungeons. Soon, the queen's attention turned to annoyance, and annoyance turned to ire. No one rejected her. Costanzo had to die. The problem? He was the king's favorite, and thus untouchable. The queen would always try to get him sent on errands to alleyways filled with knives, but the king always had something planned for the man who could do anything. If he had a diplomatic mission, he sent Costanzo, who could talk his way out of anything. If he needed a certain enemy taken care of, he sent Costanzo, who could infiltrate anywhere and take out anyone. If he needed battle plans drawn up, Costanzo, a joke, Costanzo, seared steak and capers with a red wine reduction, Costanzo. There was nothing this guy wasn't perfect for, which is why she was sent on the Seder mission. Just to the north, in Bithynia, there were satyrs. Now, satyrs were originally from Greek mythology, where they were companions of the god Dionysus. They are lovers of wine, music, dancing, and women. Basically, they are Mr. Tumnus. If Mr. Tumnus was a sleazy naked guy who is, uh, always in a state of excitement. Yeah, there's a lot of variation, but they're generally depicted as having a goat lower half and a hairy face with a snub nose. The Romans identified them with fawns, and in the time since, a lot of the distinctions have been dropped, because from the Middle Ages onward, they've been depicted very similarly to fawns. They're about the size of a normal person, but in this story at least, a pack had moved into Bithynia, and was not only harassing the locals, but devouring farms and food stores before winter, and the king of Costanza cared about precisely none of that. It wasn't really worth it to send a bunch of soldiers to fight some hairy perverts. The satyrs would use up the resources and then move on to be another king's problem. The king of Costanza, though, wanted something before they moved on. He wanted a satyr. As a pet. It was like when the teacher asks a question, and the entire class looks to their papers, not wanting to make eye contact. No one wanted to confront an entire pack of excited satyrs to try to capture one and bring them back to the city of Costanza. The king said that satyrs were supposed to have arcane knowledge and he wanted some of that knowledge. 
So who was going to go get it for him? It was then that he heard a whisper in his ear. It was his wife, the queen. She said, simply, why not Costanzo? He was so great at everything, including rebuffing the advances of a powerful older woman who would crush him like the nothing that he was. She wasn't hurt, you're hurt. The king cocked an eyebrow. Okay, good idea though. Costanzo, you're going. What do you need? As soon as Costanza had seen the queen present at the meeting, she knew where this was going. And she'd been putting together a list of items that she needed. As it turned out, it was wine. Wine and bread. So, I get tired just thinking about an all-you-can-eat bread buffet followed by something that's described as literally being a kiddie pool-sized goblet of wine. Costanza, from her place in the tree, sat praying that it would be enough. The satyrs were the servants of the god of wine, so they could hold their own. But the one-two punch of starch and alcohol was basically like a medieval tranquilizer dart. Soon, the entire pack of satyrs was sleeping, all clutching a loaf of bread like a teddy bear. Costanza stepped down from the tree, and zeroed in on one satyr that was on the edges. And that was when her foot landed on one solitary twig. It snapped, and the sound echoed through the clearing. But it was barely heard among the snoring. Costanza stood up straight. Oh, these guys were really out. It was a little more annoying, though, because after a hefty and impromptu carbo load, the satyr was like a rag doll and Costanza had to drag him all the way back to her horse. He didn't even wake up while she hogtied him and threw him over the horse's haunches. And it wasn't until they were passing a funeral, the funeral of a child, that the satyr woke up. And he was laughing. It was an altogether tragic scene. The father and mother were weeping bitterly, over the death of their child, who couldn't have been more than a toddler. A priest was leading the service, singing and looking as if he was on the verge of tears himself. The whole thing stopped hard when the satyr's laughter was heard over their tears. Costanza winced and apologized to the sea of dirty looks, and she kept on riding. The satyr was quiet until they arrived at another scene that wouldn't prompt merriment unless you were the sociopathic child of a Greek god. It was the hanging of a poor man in the piazza. Costanza grimaced and waved to the people at the somber ceremony. Sorry, sorry about this. Mythological creature here. As they rode closer to the palace, word began to spread among the city of Costanza that Costanzo, the king's top man, had actually captured a satyr. As she made the final approach, the crowd gathered and they started chanting, Costanzo, Costanzo. The satyr laughed the loudest at this. When they arrived, Costanza cut the bonds at the satyr's hooves and led him inside on a rope. Her own little triumphal procession, the king was on his throne, ready to congratulate his guy Costanzo and get some of that arcane knowledge, while the queen stood with a sour look that Costanza wasn't dead yet. The king thanked Costanzo and looked at the satyr. Okay, out with it. Tell me some cool stuff. The satyr simply looked at the king, queen, and their attendants and started laughing. And it kept laughing. It said that so long was his laughter 
that those in the hall were more than a little astonished. And I like to think that it grew strained and awkward and obviously fake, but he kept doing it. Even when the king, smiling and trying to understand what was going on, said that, okay, he could stop now, the satyr didn't stop. He stood there, laughing. The king cocked an eyebrow, okay, yeah, he got it. It was just excessive at this point. But the satyr, who was already bound and held there for the king's amusement, didn't feel the need to listen. It could get worse for him, but not much. So he kept laughing, and minutes later, he was dragged laughing from the room by Costanza. A few days in the dungeon would loosen the satyr's tongue. We'll see that it absolutely won't, but that will be right after this. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. But it did not loosen the satyr's tongue. The satyr was committed, now more than ever, to keep his mouth shut. Maybe it was spite. Maybe his silence was keeping him alive. Regardless, despite the torture and deprivation, he wouldn't talk. Then, Costanza came in. She brought him a loaf of bread and a cup of wine, and the satyr smirked at the obvious good cop move. But unlike the others, she didn't try to get him to talk. She just sat in silence as they both ate their bread. Liberation. Costanza offered after several minutes. If the satyr spoke, she would personally see to it that he was set free. Chiapino, the satyr finally said with a smile and rose, tossing aside the bread. Costanza sat confused, but Chiapino, the satyr, gestured to the jail cell door. Well, if they wanted him to talk, he'd talk. Let's get on with it then. He was ready to go. Costanza sent a message ahead of them to prepare the king to receive the satyr in front of his court. He wanted to make a show of it, that he broke the satyr who refused to talk and all that. As they walked to the palace, Costanza did have some questions of her own. She turned to Chiapino and asked, yesterday on the road, why was the funeral so funny? Why was he laughing at the body of a dead child? Chiapino smiled and nodded. Well, for one, he wasn't laughing at the body of the dead child. That's messed up. He was laughing at the boy's parents. Oh, that's so much better, Costanza said. Chipino said that the father, the one that was weeping and wailing for his son, the man wasn't the actual father. It was the priest who was presiding over the service, the one that was singing for the boy. He knew he could barely hold it together. Because of their secrets, the priest was in mourning, the mother was in mourning and steeped in guilt, and the father was weeping for a child that wasn't his. The satyr paused for laughter. It never came. So, what was the funny part exactly? Costanza asked. The satyr rolled his eyes. Some people just didn't get comedy. You know, it almost would have been better if you were laughing at the body of a dead child, Costanza said. 
And then she had another question. The thief who was about to be hanged, why did the satyr laugh at that? The satyr chuckled. In that crowd stood the rulers of the city, right? Well, most of them, with their corruption and their graft, they had defrauded the public of over a million crowns. They stood in judgment of a poor man who had stolen 10 florins to buy bread for his starving children. You know, you humans are funny, Chiapino said, as they were nearing the palace. They called the satyrs beasts, animalistic, savages. But the humans were caught up in a tangled web of secrets that would bring their societies to the ground if they were ever revealed. As they approached the throne room, doors open, and the king arrayed before them, the satyr spoke up. For instance, isn't Costanzo going to ask why he laughed the other day when the whole city cheered, Costanzo, Costanzo, Costanzo slash Costanza's eyes widened. But it had been said. The satyr said that he laughed because the person's name wasn't Costanzo. Was it? It was Costanza. The king furrowed his brow. What? What did the satyr mean? But Costanza recovered. She turned to the satyr. Yesterday, when the creature laughed when he saw the king and queen in the throne room, what did that mean? Oh, Chipino said that that one was easy. All the queen's handmaidens? The ones that attended to her every need in her chambers? Yeah. Well, they really took their job seriously and attended to her every need because they were all men. Costanza laughed at that one. Well, the king sat up on his throne and nodded to his guards, who rushed from the room. He buried his face in his palms, and Chiapino asked if he'd like to ask those questions he had worked so hard for. But the king merely waved his hands, giving Costanza the order to set the satyr free. I can imagine that Chiapino didn't push his luck, bleated, and skipped from the king's hall as fast as his little goat hooves would take him. The king turned to Costanzo. Did, did he know about the queen? Costanzo shrugged. I mean, not definitively, but he had a pretty good idea. You know, seeing as the queen was constantly trying to seduce him and then plotted to have him killed when he didn't go through with it. He didn't know about the handmaidens, but uh, in retrospect, that should have been obvious. Costanzo said as the queen and her special friends were brought into the throne room. Pretty much all of them had a full five o'clock shadow. Huh. Well... We'll start the medieval divorce proceedings, the king said with a sigh. So the servants did, and started building a bonfire in the courtyard, into which they would throw the queen. Wait, the king said, holding up a hand. Costanzo froze. The ruler rose, and snatched Costanzo's hat from his head. In an instant, Costanzo became Costanza, and the king understood Chiapino's words. He sat back and smiled his most trusted advisor, and, if he could say so, best friend, was a beautiful woman. They heard the blood-curdling scream from outside as the first of the queen's man-harem was tossed into the fire. The king smiled. Well, seeing as he was newly single, Costanza embraced the king and, over the screams of his wife, accepted his proposal. As a quick follow-up, after Costanza and the king were married, she became queen, and she did send a message back home to Ricardo, 
Valeriana, the Egyptian king and queen of Thebes, telling them that she was safe and that she had done what she had set out to do and more. Ricardo sat back with a smile. After years of anxiety about what happened to his youngest daughter, he could finally rest. His kingdom was, once again, wrapped up with a bow. Perfection. Hey, so fun news, Queen Valeriana said. I'm pregnant. Just kidding on that last pregnancy part, though I really wish it did end at the beginning like that. Even with a shockingly low marriage age in the Middle Ages, with two rounds of children essentially in adulthood, we're approaching the point beyond where they could reasonably think that she could be pregnant again. In reality, the couple probably relaxed in their little sliver of a kingdom, grateful to be able to raise four daughters to adulthood in the medieval world. Speaking of daughters, we'll finish today with a short, brutal story of Molly Whoopi. A story from England, but one that's set on the continent. They aren't coming back, are they? I don't know. Do parents usually blindfold their children before leading them out to the forest and leaving them with a very audible high five? No? Come on, sis, what do you got? Molly asked. She was the youngest of the youngest three children, and she had heard her parents arguing in their shack. They were having some money problems, and they couldn't afford to feed all their children, so they decided to cut some expenses and downsize by leaving their three youngest, three girls, out in the dark forest alone. The girl answered Molly with a handful of nothing. They all had nothing. Molly looked toward the setting sun. They better get walking. The only thing worse than a fairy tale dark forest was the dark forest at night. If you don't let us in, we will die, period, Molly said, jamming her foot in to block the door. The woman said that Molly didn't understand. Her husband was a fairy tale giant, fee-fi-fo-fum and all that. If you saw the girls, they were as good as eaten. And the wife, a normal human who definitely didn't have a super sad backstory of her own, was very tired of eating human. So please, leave. Molly looked out onto the forest, now completely dark. <laughs> she laughed. A giant? Was that it? She could handle giants. She waved her sisters on in, praying that she could handle giants. Later that evening, after a dinner where the girls held their noses and tried not to think about what they were eating, Daddy Giant came home, looked at the girls, and grabbed his club. His wife jumped up. Please. She just got the last humans out of the grout. She didn't want to see it. Please, just outside and later. The giant sneered and set down his club. He grabbed some rope and tied it around the necks of the three girls, looping it around his own belt. He then showed them to their bed. The girls were surprised to see that the bed was already occupied by three girls. More accurately, they were three infants the size of the three daughters. Being the daughters of the giant and the human woman, in what would surely be a normal and not horrifying birthing experience. You, you put your babies to sleep with gold chains around their necks? Molly asked, commenting on the gold chains around the babies' necks. That seemed like a great idea. No talking, 
Sleep now, the giant grunted, pointing to the bed. The girls wedged in between the giant babies and went to sleep. It was around midnight that the giant rose, yanked on the ropes, and dragged the girls outside to finish what he never got a chance to start when he walked in the door that evening. After a lot of noise, he put his bloody club back against the wall and dropped the bodies into a sack for his wife to cook the next morning. Back in bed, Molly Whoopi and her sister sat wide-eyed. She was so glad she followed her hunch and switched the ropes, wearing the golden chain of the giant's daughters and giving them the regular ropes. Also, the giant's wife was right. It was way more dangerous in here than it was out in the dark forest. The trio of sisters stole past the sleeping giant and his wife and crept out into the night. They ran, and they didn't stop until morning. They ran until they came to the house of the king. You realize you have a giant out there eating people? Molly shouted at the king. Was he going to do something? The king just laughed. Oh, that's cute. No, no, he wasn't. Look, it's a fairy tale forest. If it's not a giant, it's a wolf. And if it's not a wolf, it's a creature that hides in the shadows and eats children's teeth. He made that last one up, but he bet they didn't know that. That was the point. It's a dark and scary place. Anything could be out there, and the giant couldn't cross the narrow bridge into his kingdom. The bridge of one hair, as they called it. So he was the forest's problem. Then he turned to Molly. Molly was a clever girl, and she managed well. But she would manage much better if she'd go back to the giant. Molly smiled. And what was in it for her if she went back to that death trap? The king motioned to her elder sister and his eldest son. Her sister would be married to a prince and never have to wander the forest again. Deal? Molly thought about it and became serious. Deal. What did the king want? As it turned out, there was a sword that hung in the house of the giant, and the king wanted it. The next part of the story isn't super surprising. Molly sneaks into the giant's house while he's asleep, and she steals the sword. He wakes up and chases her, but he stopped at the bridge of one hair, warning her to never come back. She laughs and says she'll be back two more times. She is too, with the promise of a second betrothal for the middle sister, Molly steals the giant's purse, his pouch of coins. At the promise of her own betrothal to the youngest son, she, again, makes her way back to the giant's home to get a ring off his finger. With the help of some oil, she had it off when the giant's eyes opened. The problem with telling people you'll be back multiple times is that they're expecting you. The giant grabbed Molly by the neck and asked if she was a giant and he was an insolent little girl, one who was responsible for the loss of his daughters, sword and money, what would she do? Molly had an answer. She would put the giant in a sack with a cat, dog, needle, thread and shears. She would then go into the forest and get the biggest stick she could find, take the sack down and beat him to death while he was still inside of it with an angry cat and dog. The giant nodded. Wow, that was dark and sounded pretty good. He grabbed a cat and dog I guess he wasn't super attached to, tossed in the sewing kit and shears that Molly had also suspiciously mentioned, tied off the bag, and went into the forest. Oh. My. Gosh. Molly uttered when she heard the door close. 
What? Said the wife, who was keeping watch. Oh my gosh, if you could see what I see, Molly said, and then sniffled. It it was glorious. What do you see? The wife asked, standing up. Molly started weeping. It was, it was beautiful. It all, it all made sense now. Life, the universe, everything. The wife ran over and tried to work the knot, but she couldn't get the bag open. She wanted to see. Molly said yes, absolutely. She began cutting a hole in the bag and exited, somehow keeping an angry cat and dog inside the bag. The wife climbed in, and as soon as Molly finished sewing up the hole, the woman just sat there. Over the cacophony of barking and hissing and shrieks, she managed to say that she saw nothing. She wanted to get out now. Molly? Molly? But Molly was already pocketing the ring she had slipped off earlier. When the giant arrived, she was hiding behind the door and slipped out as soon as he started beating the sack. The barking and the cat drowned out any part of the wife's voice that he might recognize. When the giant realized what had happened, he howled with fury and bounded off after Molly. But it was too late. She was already over the bridge of one hair. He screamed that she better not come back again. This time, Molly agreed, and she never returned. When she made it back to the king's home, she took her place by her sisters, married the youngest prince, and she smiled as young women told the story of Molly Whoopi, the orphan girl who battled giants and won. That's it for the stories this time. Molly Whoopi is one of those famously fearless fairy tale heroines and there are more than a few variations. It follows the same kind of motifs of Jack and the Beanstalk, or Jack the Giant Slayer, though Molly's giant seems to be way smarter and more dangerous than any of Jack's giants. Speaking of Jack the Giant Slayer, we are finishing his story next week, as he moves from a relatively unknown nobody with a fancy belt to one of the knights of the round table. If you'd like to support the show, beyond leaving a review or telling a friend about it, there's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of an edible dehydrated tarantula, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad free versions of the show that also probably aren't safe to eat. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is Hoop Snake from North America. So you're in the Old West, and you're somehow still alive. Congratulations. You look down the road, and you see something rolling toward you. It could be a, I don't know, loose wagon wheel. It could be one of those weird little 1800s hoops that kids ran around with. Or it could be Hoop Snake. And if it's Hoop Snake, you might already be dead. The American frontier was a strange, beautiful, and brutal place where it seemed like everything was trying to kill you. Case in point, Hoop Snake. Hoop Snake is a snake. That's a hoop. It's not super complicated. It's a super venomous snake that doesn't bite you. It bites itself. Its venom isn't contained in its teeth, but in its tail, which protrudes off the back of it, like a rooster spur. Because the safest place for your venomous spike is in your mouth, the hoop snake does just that, placing its tail in its mouth and then using its snake abs to turn itself into a wheel. Because apparently regular snakes aren't fast enough, it'll then roll around and, when it gets close, stab pretty much anything with that venom-packed and spit-soaked spur killing it pretty much instantly. If you see a snake tumbling toward you, there's a way out. 
that doesn't take you through a snake's digestive system. Just dive through the hoop. Apparently the snake and its hoop is big enough for a full-grown man to dive through it. The hoop snake will be so confused that it'll collapse and slither off on its belly like those commoner snakes it derides so much. And you'll survive in the Old West to be killed by bears, cougars, tuberculosis, other snakes, the common cold, dysentery, scorpions, scarlet fever, alligators, and outlaws. This creature wasn't just a story told by lumberjacks at night, but a creature that the scientific community of the 19th and 20th century actually wanted to study. I linked to a very lengthy 1925 article about the hoop snake and whether or not it existed, and read that a naturalist paid and read that a naturalist placed $10,000 in a trust for someone who could provide evidence of a hoop snake, which in the early 1900s was an absolutely insane amount of money. I'm not even going to do the math. It's at least over 100 grand of 2019 dollars. It wasn't just a story that lumberjacks told, but it was also absolutely a story that lumberjacks told. There's a story of Paul Bunyan being attacked by a hoop snake and blocking the sting at the last possible moment with a wooden peavy handle. The peavy was a tool that lumberjacks used. The snake slithered off in defeat, but the wood that it stung swelled to such a size that Paul was able to cut 1,000 cords of wood from that swollen handle. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to Simply Safe for sponsoring us this week. Simply Safe makes home security easy, with no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. For just $15 a month, you get 24-7 professional monitoring throughout your home. And Simply Safe uses their revolutionary video verification technology to visually confirm that break-ins are happening, allowing police to get to you three and a half times faster. Visit simplysafe.com slash legends and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. That's simplysafe.com slash legends. Simplysafe.com slash legends. All right, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Hold up. 